Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Some people ask me, how do you find these people that you talk to, these amazing people, this amazing variety of women? And it's just by following the old reporter's intuition that I've developed over almost 40 years. So my hometown is Albany, Georgia, which some people say Albany, uh, not today's guest. And I was down in South Georgia working my day job, which is voicelocket.com. Uh, recording an interview with an amazing man, a 90-year-old doctor who's spent his entire life in South Georgia. Great stories. And I wanted to talk to a friend of one of my oldest friends, one of my oldest friends in the world, my college roommate, much to his regret, is a guy named John Stevenson. And he was at my third birthday party. And he has a friend named Bronwyn B-R-O-N-W-Y-N, Bronwyn Hinton. And Bronwyn Hinton is a chef and has worked in food services and has also written about food and loves food. But uh, she was also married to a guy named Steve Hinton, and... Uh, he has recently passed, but she's curating a retrospective of his work. I think we're going to put out some bonus clips about that. But she is fascinating in the artistry of food and the appreciation of food. She also went to my alma mater, which is Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt University. And so she's a Commodore. And I just wanted to meet her. I mean, this is just a way to meet somebody who's absolutely fascinating and from my hometown. And we talk about that because she's there. She moved there after I left. So I grew up there, and I don't pretend to know the place right now the way she does, but we get into that. Fascinating episode today. Buckle up, Bronwyn Hinton. Beware hatred when you see it. And when you see spewing, and when you see vitriol, it's like, y'all, stop. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. I'm Stuart Watson, and we're going into our fourth year. And several of the guests, a disproportionate number, have come from my hometown of Albany, Georgia. And today's guest is no exception. Bronwyn Hinton uh, retired as the guest service manager at the Jones Center at Itchaway. And when I was growing up, these big former plantations were hunting preserves, turned into hunting preserves, but Itchaway turned into a research 
almost 30,000 acres of research and conservation. And you'll hear us talk about that because um, Mr. Woodruff of Coca-Cola fame uh, used some of his millions and millions to the good in preserving the natural space and researching the natural space in southern Georgia, in southwest Georgia, where I'm from. Bronwyn has also contributed as a food writer to Southwest Georgia Living Magazine, and she's a bona fide expert on food, and we spend a lot of time. You may be hungry by the time you finish about half of this episode. Bronwyn Hinton. Where were you born? Chattanooga. Tennessee. Yes. What was the name on your birth certificate? Bronwyn Jane Semmer, S-E-M-M-E-R. Where did Bronwyn come from? My mother's family is Welsh. She had an Aunt Bronwyn. It's a Welsh name. Have you ever met another Bronwyn? Yes. There's another Bronwyn in Albany. Really? Yes, a young woman in her 40s. And she was three when I moved here, I think. And so as soon as I moved to Albany, where I, all over the country, I'd never known another one. As soon as I moved here, people said, oh, there's a Bronwyn here. And so there's, there's another. Yep. Have you been to Wales? Yes, I have. I have. In fact, let's see. I don't know if we went on our honeymoon, but uh, yes, Steve and I have both been. Now mm-hmm. you say Albany. I do say Albany. And when I say Albany, people correct me. And they say it's Albany. They certainly do. And when you hear that, what do you say? <laughs> I just shake my head because I, I, I hear it occasionally, but n- not enough to warrant everybody correcting people. Yeah, I say Albany. Yeah. But the Benny, I mean, you know, I think people refer to it as the Benny, which I guess. Oh, people say that. The Benny, yeah. But I haven't been here in 45 years. Well, I mean, they've I been saying things here. behind your back. Yes. Oh, I, I'm sure they <laughs> yeah, are. Yeah, they have. <laughs> I'm sure they have. Yep. Yeah. Um, why do you live in Albany? Um, we were living in New York City, and... Steve had a studio and was painting. I worked at a hotel. I was a front office manager at a big Holiday Inn on 10th and 57th Street. And he worked at Henry Bendel's and painted. And But um, we got pregnant. So according to Steve, he couldn't picture rearing a child in the city. And uh, we came here. We had a business here, but there was no family member here. To run it so we just made the transition from the city to <clears throat> the country in albany georgia and lived on a rented farm across from lilliston corporation um, that pet carlton owned mr carlton was our landlord and so we had that's why steve said something about he just couldn't picture the grime in a little kid's neck in a stroller so we packed us up and moved us to Albany. That's a vivid image. Yes, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I could picture living in the city easily, <laughs> very easily. 
uh, we uh, we went to the carousel in uh, Central Park. We went up to Lake Mayopac to visit with musician friends who were Athenians who were up there pretty close to Woodstock and then we got in the moving van and moved to Albany. Those were our goodbyes with Central Park and Lake Mayopac and then we headed here. Now the reason we're still here or I'm still here is um, we have a child here who has a family but Albany um, <laughs> it, it became something it wasn't when we first moved here I was very aware of what all it wasn't I missed my friends in New York and I had lived in many southern towns but I'd never lived in one like Albany I felt a un unkind friction that was, you know, startling um, between groups of people. But as time went on, I was frustrated by education and frustrated by this and that, but, you know, learned how not to be learned how to, um, you know, live where you live and learn where you live and love where you live and it just really helps. So as the reason I'm still here is not just that I have a daughter and a granddaughter and a son-in-law here, but I kind of really learned to like this demographic love this demographic, appreciate them. Um, you know, we're, we're a very poor community and uh, what, I guess, maybe it, this could have been Steve's phrase, not mine, but, um, you know, we really appreciate the generosity of the poor. And it's just been, you know, it, it's been, it, it's kept us here as we've watched or as I have watched. Um, I do put Steve in this because this was a very wee conversation that he and I had towards the end of his life. You know, we were both aware of the fact of who, with, who we lived amongst and liked it. And we're grateful for the people who live here. And on top of that, the soil, the dirt's so pretty. You know, the dirt's really beautiful and you can grow here. It's sandy loam. The river's beautiful. The, I don't know, the sunsets are just spectacular from October till now. Uh, there were just things, there were outdoor things that were just charming. Um, and we made good friends. And, uh, but a lot of, most people, ha a lot of people have left. They've gotten closer to their grandchildren. They've um, moved to more exciting places once they retired. I think they've, a lot of people have done things that they've always wanted to do. And a lot of that was getting out of Albany. So, but I, I don't, I don't want to go. I consider this home. It's easy for me to maneuver.
I'm surrounded by good neighbors and good friends, and I'm here. I grew up here, couldn't wait to leave, <laughs> did not understand the beauty of it for probably decades. And now when I come back, I see uh, the Spanish moss and the live oak and the pine trees completely differently and the quail country. Um, you know, I, I learned to appreciate it. And uh, I didn't see it for so long. I mean, I worked at Lilliston. I built peanut combines and for a summer, such that it was right. just attached nuts and bolts. But um, the more I look from the outside, there's some stories I need to tell that are part of my history that I really need to come back and, you know, just get in touch. But I am not, I, I don't, I, I don't understand the place now. Um, I, I don't presume to understand the place as it is now. You can put it on, yeah, that's cool. Um, so that's why I ask. Uh, and I real um, and so, uh, for instance, with a lot of the reporting, which is what I did, political reporting, um, I mean, I would, I think there's a lot that people don't understand about Georgia at this point in history. And I think you have to go way, 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 way back. I mean, uh, back to like when white people first came here, you know, like back to before Oglethorpe to really understand the waves and the demographics and everything else. And that it's not a simplistic place. No. And no. <laughs> that the relationship between blacks and whites here is not simplistic in the least. Um, sometimes at the surface it can be, but there's just this very deep, entangled, shared history. And so you used a phrase, the generosity of the poor. And so that fits in right there. They don't have stuff to give. So what does that mean? Um, what do they give? Time, support, engagement. You know, they participate. And it's, I've, been, I've been here for 40 years and I've seen it get better and better. And, and actually people have more stuff probably than they did once upon a time. I don't know. It's just, <clears throat> or to say the generosity of the poor perhaps could be interpreted that they are not um, full of hatred and anger and could be. And so sitting where I'm sitting, I'm very grateful for people to have that much love or grace or whatever it is, patience, whatever it is, um, I'm very, you know, grateful and appreciative of all 
their work and everything that they've contributed to my world, our worlds. That's very aware. I mean, that's a keen observation born of, you know, your experience in actually being here. Um, how much of it do you think is because of the black church, the Christian church in the black community, that culture? Well, it's a hub, you know, it's a, a, a lot, a lot, a lot of faith and a lot of um, enlightenment, you know, I, I don't know, I, I, I've been enough to understand maybe what I'm saying, but I haven't been a lot, so I don't know. But yes, I understand the, the, the part the black church place. So John and I at lunch, um, he said that um, such and such a restaurant do, does a big business when the black church gets out. And I said, what time does the black church get out? And he said, two. What time does the white church get out? Noon. And he says, his wife, Nancy, used to say, um, black people love Jesus more than white people. <laughs> well, and... and Yet another reason why we miss Nancy. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, well, when I first moved here, uh, black church was, folks were just arriving in the parking lots when I was coming home from church. And it was my understanding that they started late because they had work to do. They had stuff they had to do in the mornings on Sunday that perhaps white families didn't have to do. I don't know, or it had just been that way for so long, but it is not the case now. Services are at 10.30, they're out at 12, mm. you know, so <laughs> we're, getting on, we're getting on the same page, I guess, yeah. about, um, about the rest of our Sunday afternoon, probably, is what that is. Well, let me back up and figure out your circuitous route to Albany, Georgia, because there was a lot of time. Um, for your mother, your number what of how many? I'm the, I'm the last of four. And brothers, sisters? I have two sisters and a brother. I'm mm. the baby. Uh, mm -hmm. Are they all still with us? Yes, they are. Oh, thank My parents God. died when I was really, really young, separately, not in... But I still have um, all three of my siblings. And how old were you when your parents died? I was 10 when my father died, and I was 15 when my mother died. Yeah. And how did your father die? A heart attack. Yeah. You know, one that takes you like that. <laughs> yeah. When you were two or three, like a real little girl, mm -hmm. um, you're parents would have described you how? What kind of little kid were you? I think they called me Baby Duck. I think I had blonde curls, and I think maybe when I was two, I may have been a handful, and my mother's sister had to come for a year and give her a hand. I barely remember that. Um, I th you know, I think that I had a sister who was 11 years old or a brother who was nine years older. I think, you know, I think they enjoyed me. Uh, I was, um, at two and three, I don't really know. But 
you know, I look good in my Easter dresses, and uh, I, but past that, I did have an extraordinary, I had a wonderful gardening experience with my father, uh, like full-blown teacher, you know, master teacher about to his children about the natural world and just science in general, I guess, but not just science. Is this um, flowers or vegetables or both? Flowers. Flowers. Mm -hmm. And also like stone masonry to put the hardscape in our yard, collecting the stones in a Studebaker on Sunday afternoons, you know, riding around as a family, trying to find those crab orchard stones in Tennessee and, and building patios and walls and steps and terraces and then putting in the putting in the flowers. So I knew I knew a lot by the time I was six by the time I started school I knew a lot I also fished with him on I did fish with him and I, oh, an older gentleman named Colonel McElroy um, we had a place on the on the lake where we went to fish I did that did you fish from a boat or from the dock from the dock hmm. from the dock what kinds of things would you catch well, if you're from Tennessee, you you call them crappie. You don't call them crappy. So we've got crappie and um, you know sunfish, bluegill. I don't remember. Did you clean them? Yeah, with him. Yes, and I yes, and I you know I could handle worms and dough balls and th I think I was afraid of the hook, but I wasn't afraid of any. I wasn't afraid of the critter at all. Um, I don't know. I may have been. And did you cook them, or did your mom cook them, or? She, she, my mother would, but also my father would cook outdoors sometimes. So he might cook a breakfast over a fire or something like that, and fish could be maybe in that menu. Um, but if they were, if they were for later in the day, my mother would have, you know, cooked them. Fried them? Uh, you know, just whatever, probably, but also, you know, Baked and broiled. Well, I guess it depends on the size of the fish. <laughs> Do you enjoy cooking? I'm a chef. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's not an answer. Um, I do. I mean, it's been a big chunk of my life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really get any sort of credentials in this until after I was, <clears throat> you know, I was 55 years old and just retired last year. What? When did you first like fall in love with with food, food. and cooking? I liked cooking with my mother. I liked making homemade noodles. I liked making pie crust. I liked I liked to eat. Uh, and then as I, at, you know, I liked to bake and like to you know watch her make pies and and learn. Uh, and then as I got a little bit older and was allowed in there, I was interested enough to you know, get in there and figure some things out. I also had one sister that was five years older than I was, so she actually cooked more than I did while we were at home. Um, I think I enjoyed it at Scouts. I liked, uh, we have this camp where we just, they would put us out in the middle of the woods, a patrol of eight of us for a week. I think there were some grown-ups off in the woods, but I don't even know if we knew where they were. Once we found them, 
they were in shorts and in lawn chairs getting a sun tan, but we didn't really know where they were. We had to take care of ourselves. But I was always in charge of planning, you know, weeks worth of food, the menus, how to cook it, how to pack it, and travel with it. And that's a pretty good indicator. I liked that a lot. And I knew I liked that. So there you go. Do you have any of your mother's recipes? I have my mother's. I have my grandmother's. I have my great-grandmother's. I have Steve's great-aunts. I have his grandmother. And really, everybody's handwriting looks exactly the same. <laughs> all the, the penmanship is the same. I do. They're all handwritten. And legible. Enough. Yes, and that they're also in that shorthand from that generation, you know, um, the order of the just the order of the ingredients is then part of the instruction because it means you know it means certain things <laughs> if it's butter if it starts out with butter and sugar it doesn't have to tell you to cream them you know that you're supposed to cream them and then if it says three eggs you know that you're supposed to add them one at a time and you know that then you're supposed to add in your dry ingredients you know a little bit at a time but you know so all of that i, I like the shorthand of that cuz i realize I'm good at reading it. I understand it. Um, I don't. I, um, yeah, I like it. What would your mother make that you would look forward to? Could be a seasonal dish. Could be Christmas. Could be Thanksgiving. Could be, but something that you were like, oh yeah, we're gonna get this. <laughs> I think I just really like to eat. You know, I liked <laughs> when we had roast lamb on sa- on Sundays. I liked when we had fried chicken. I loved when we had ham and potato salad. I liked when we had sauerkraut and pork. I think once paint fumes made me throw that up, and it was a long time before I could eat it again, <laughs> but I can eat it now. I, I enjoy it. She could make pies. She made cakes. I, I enjoyed her cooking. Mm-hmm. Dinner was, um, yeah, it was good. Would you go with her to the market? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um in addition to the supermarket, was there a farmer's market that you went to? Oh, sure. We went on Friday nights as a family. I, the, the, my older siblings said that there was a liquor store on that part of town that they preferred to get liquor in rather than in our neighborhood. So in case those people who had signed some document at church about not drinking, they didn't. <laughs> but anyway, yes, we went to a farmer's market, and I loved it. I loved the way it smelled. It was like a carnival. It would be at night under lights. They pulled plugs out of cantaloupes and handed them to you on a knife and let you taste them and, you know, pulled the shucks off the corn and popped those kernels so you could see the milk squirting out. And I just loved it. Mm. Yes, I liked all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. It's sensory, it's smell, it's Mm -hmm. taste. And it's, it was about food. <laughs> it's tactile. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I never, I never looked at it. I didn't. I, ours came from a farmer's market, and yes, my father did have some vegetables in the, in the yard. Of course, he grew tomatoes, but he also grew things all over his compost heap. You know, there were vines of all sorts. But we didn't have a farm, so I never really got arthritis in my thumbs shelling peas or anything like that. I just, I had a pretty you know, suburban experience with um, summer vegetables on a manageable scale. I don't remember mother canning or putting up stuff very much. 
um, some, but not a lot. We ate we ate what she cooked. <laughs> um, is there a recipe they had that you have improvised on? That you're I'm like sure, this. Sure. This has come like I don't know. You know, I make so much of my own food now, or did when I was still cooking, that. Well, yes, my potato salad is my potato salad, but it started out as hers. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what did you add? What was the improv? Uh, uh, let's see. What's the difference? Uh, I've put horseradish in it. Oh, I've fine. added green olives. I've put yellow bell pepper in it. I've a mixture of Dijon um, mayonnaise and maybe some sour cream. You know, hers was probably just... I put pickle relish in mine. I'm pretty sure she never did. Anyway, yes, all, all the riffs on potato salad. But the riffs on other things, um, I was better at certain things when I was under her tutelage. I mean, my pie crust was much better when I was six, I think, than it is now. And I know every single trick in the book, how to make it right. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that it. I always do, but uh, you know, I, I know how. I'm trying to think. What was better about it when you were six? I think I did it more frequently, and wow. I think that's all. I mean, I did it with her, and I did it more frequently. Um, you know, that might be something I did once a week with her, rather than. Once every two months, when I was just cooking for my family. Now, when I was cooking for a living, I might have to crank it out a lot more yeah. and just and do better. But um, yeah, yeah, the there are these sad greenhouse tomatoes in the market in the supermarket. A lot of times, um, what type of tomatoes did your father grow, and what type do you look forward to? Uh, and resourcing them, like for instance, heritage tomatoes or different breeds. What do you go look for? Um, I don't know what he grew. I really don't know what he was. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if he was growing better boys or not. He would have, being a scientist, he would have saved seeds. He would have done that. And I don't know that I was paying attention to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always said I can't grow a tomato. What do I look for in tomatoes? When Steve and I lived in New York, I thought the tomatoes from New Jersey were the best things that I had ever tasted. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't say that every place. But I really thought they were. I had, I had the right amount of twang and tang and sweetness. And just, I thought they were great. I enjoyed the produce from New Jersey when he and I lived in the city. Um and we did live there, yeah, for mm-hmm. four years. You ask about the circuitous route to get here. We went from Nashville, where we graduated from college, to Athens, Georgia. And then we went to Valdosta, Georgia. Then we went to New York City. And then we came here. And we've been here for 40 years. Um, the type of tomatoes. I'm not much... <laughs> I make this tomato pie, and people ask me, and I make it with those grocery store Roma tomatoes. (laughs) And I have to explain this to people because they hold up well. And if you are 
and they cut well. And if your food has to be served to somebody, I can make that Roma tomato <laughs> taste really good, but I need it to be dried out and I need it to cut. Does that make any sense? It it's hard for sense. me to make tomato pie. People wait until tomatoes are at their, you know, their zenith. And then they make tomato pies. I slice tomatoes and put lots of salt and pepper on them and eat them when they're like that. Um, and I don't know that I'd stick them in a pie, but those are also real juicy and it's hard for me to cut. This isn't very interesting. It's <laughs> fascinating. Oh gosh. I'm, I'm not a food snob. I'm not a food snob. I am grateful. I like other people's cooking. I am so grateful for when people... When you come across a family that really does get supper on the table as if it were still 1950 and has really dedicated themselves to putting supper on the table. And, and I just think it's marvelous. Um, but I do love other people's food. Um, okay, mac and cheese. How would you make mac and cheese? Well, I make a white sauce and then turn it into a cheese sauce. And I don't know that I like mine as much as I used to. Uh, sometimes I think you can just do the noodles, use the starch water, and throw cheese <laughs> and lots of salt and pepper on it and get a good one that way. But anyway, I make, a, I make a white, I make a cheese sauce and stir it up and put cheese on top and just enough in the oven to, not very long in the oven. Mm -mm. Um, my wife had her first pig's foot today at lunch. I saw pig's feet at BJ's, yes. And I started to get them, but I'd already filled up my take-home container. They looked really good, were they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they looked real. I'll get them the next time. Now, I've had chicken feet in uh, dim sum in a yeah. Chinese restaurant. Yeah. I have never had pig's feet, and I didn't have them today. I've seen pickled pig's feet in the old coffee cup in Charlotte. Um, will you, is there something you will not eat, for instance, uh, chitlins? Oh, I would. I may not have them, you know, it's like haggis. I may not have it the second time, but I would, there's no, I would eat that. I'm, in fact, I've, I'm sure I've had chitlins. Um, is there something I wouldn't eat? I don't know if I like eel. Uh... In sushi, it might be. No, that's where I don't ever order it. I never order it in a sushi restaurant, and right. I don't know why. Uh, is there something I don't eat? How about... Not really. Snails? I love snails. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm a good eater. I, like, I, I don't think I have very many um, taboos. Yeah. Gosh, well, I really don't. First job in and around food service. Um, it would be my first waitressing job, and that would have been the summer after I graduated from high school. Mm -hmm. And I consider waitressing around food service, yeah, very what definitely. Of, what kind of restaurant? It was in a mall. It was called Eddie's Petite Gourmet, and it was in Kansas City on the um, Kansas, on the Missouri side. And uh, it was a nice kind of bistro-type sandwich shop, but it had a bar in the back, too, separate. What did you learn in waitressing? 
kind of about dealing with people? Um, the owner told me not to be as nice to the guests as I was. <laughs> so I, I don't know if I don't I have no. It's one of those you know. It's a mystery. Um, I don't know. I probably got my timing down. You know, I, I did get my timing down. I probably learned how to watch. You know, it's a big deal to be able to work the dining room because you have to literally, every table you pass, whether it's yours or not, you need to observe just like that. Like, you know, who's staring at the ceiling? Who's not eating their food? Who's trying to tell somebody something? You know, you got you to gotta figure it out, get it done and respond to what they need, not to hover, um, but to observe, to check back, to uh, never promise them anything you can't deliver. And that's just all the way through the whole industry. You know, if timing is off, if everything is really slow, you have to be honest. And uh, I guess, you know, I probably got a big chunk of that with that first restaurant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't push the fish, <laughs> you know, don't. Exactly. Um, yes. There was this, um, it's like a, it may have been like a Kentucky hot ground, but it was just an open-faced cheese gratin on top of bread on a big ironstone platter that they put up underneath the salamander, and it stunk up the whole restaurant. And I would warn people that it tasted really good, but it was going to smell. And I probably had all the aplomb of a 18-year-old <laughs> when I said, this stinks. Anyway, but it was popular. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think what else I learned. Oh, God, it was 18, though, too. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's all that going on. You know, there were other kids from other colleges. There were, you know, there were boys there. There were cooks. Yeah. My first, probably my first experience with back of the house. Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. If you had erased yourself at a certain point after children or after a move, you're able to re-become yourself. You're able to sort of re-emerge. I reinvented after the last child went to college. And I would have to say reinvent. I went to technical school. That's why I was a spokesman for technical schools. Like, if you don't know what to do, go retool yourself. So, you know, that's what I did. And then I went to another culinary school and was able to take uh, decades of experience and add to what I then had the credentials for and managed to, you know, work for not quite 20 years, um, 17 years maybe. How did you do that? How did you decide what to become? (laughs) Well, I went to Albany Tech, and they had this great big arena. You know, it's like all the disciplines were there. And so the genius that I was, since the last one had just gone to Auburn, I thought, 
I didn't know what a modern workplace was. There were hotels here. I guess I could have been I could have been a sales manager. I could have been this. I could have been I thought about it. I could have been a guest service manager, which I ended up being years later. But um, I had all kinds of training and experience in that. But what I thought you had to do in 2003, I went into that arena and I asked around and I told them that I wanted to become Microsoft certified. And fortunately, Ann Clark, who was in charge of the culinary arts department, heard me say that and looked at me. I don't know. And she, I mean, I wasn't even at her booth. And she looked at me and she said, are you sure? She said, what do you really want to do? And I said, I don't know. But I think if you go back to work, you pretty much need to understand Microsoft better than I do. And she goes, but what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. Maybe I need to learn how to make quiches well enough that I can sell them and not kill anybody. (laughs) And she said, well, then why don't you come over here and sit by me? (laughs) And I did. So I worked, you know, I worked with Ann for, and got an associate's degree in culinary arts and then taught for them off and on for four years. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also... I was taught culinary and catered with them and, you know, started to work on my own some too. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, you lived out and worked um, near one of the plantations, right? Yes, I was a... um, from 2009 until 2015, I was the chef at Gillianville Plantation, along with Vicki Weiss Setzer, who had been that woman's assistant. Mm-hmm. Ann Clark's assistant was Vicki. Vicki had been a student at Albany Tang. She was working at Gillianville. In fact, I think I had gotten her that, at, that job at Gillianville as the sous chef. So they hired me as the chef when that guy left, and Vicky was my sous chef. And we worked together for six seasons. But John showed me the house you all lived in out mm-hmm. there. Now, that's in, the other, that's in another direction. That's south of the airport, and right. Gillianville is just directly west of town. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So were you living in that house when... Well, during quail season, I had my own little house at Gillianville because you worked in, from 6.30 in the morning till 8 o'clock at night. So you just went down to a little cabin. I called it a chef shack, but um, chef house. And you slept there when you had guests. And then I went home to what to the big house, which is eight miles south of the airport, my home, mm-hmm. uh, when I didn't have guests. And that was only five months out of the year, quail season, well, from middle of October till about March 1st. What would a menu be for, well, for, the, for the folks who came to hunt quail? Well, for breakfast, we had, um, we had eggs, we had bacon, sausage, we had a starch, which was either grits or oatmeal. We had something sweet. We had fresh fruit, and I made either um, sometimes pancakes, sometimes waffles, toast, bagels, you know, some sort of starch, you know, bread, fresh squeezed orange juice, coffee. Wow. Yeah, that's breakfast. That's breakfast. breakfast. And then lunch would have been, um, 
you know, even if it was soup and sandwich, it was substantial soup, it was substantial sandwich, and I would have two sides and um, a dessert. Mm. And then a, another another lunch would be fried quail and um, oh, uh, uh, some uh, bake uh, spoon bread and butter beans and okra and tomatoes and mm-hmm. now if you have quail in a restaurant in New York do they just slaughter the quail the way they do chickens so you don't have the shot you don't have any pellet in in the quail in restaurants I don't know which restaurants are serving field quail that somebody's killed they're serving Pen raised, I would think. Right, no farm shot. Raised, yes. Yeah, farm. Yeah, is that what you asked me? Yeah, and so what I'm wondering. The but we at the plantation, you had somebody who that's what their job was, was to you know to get all those feathers out, to get every bit of that shot out, to make certain that Vicky and I had a big supply for um, a nighttime quail dinner and a fried quail dinner, which was their last meal before they left um, lunch even if I would even box it up and put it on private planes if they didn't have time. And you ask about, um, but they also got boxed, they also got put in containers so that the guests could take them home. They, we had to freeze, we had a whole freezer designated just for quail that we kept for our purposes. Um, yeah. If you're gonna eat quail, what is your favorite recipe? I really like fried quail, and I like cutting them in half and picking them up and eating them with my... I like fried quail a lot. I like my fried quail. Um, And then I think the only thing I... um, I Smothered, um, bacon-wrapped on the grill with a nice basting sauce. I think the ones I used were balsamic balsamic honey and black pepper was one. There was one that was like emeralds. It's almost like a barbecue sauce. And then I did another one that was uh, Jack Daniels and pepper jelly, probably. I think that's about right. Just basting them on there. Um, Can you buy quail around here? Yes. I mean, to now, can you can you buy, buy them in the grocery store. You can. Yes. There's a company called Manchester Farms that has a really, really nice, like, five-ounce quail that's got... It might be semi-boneless already, but that's, it, it's a great product. Is it frozen? Uh, yes, for the most part, they're frozen. I think I answered your question. Yeah, you did. Nighttime, the, nighttime was pretty interesting, though, because the, the wagons came in around 5 o'clock. And these are mule-drawn. Mule-drawn, exactly. And they came in and fixed themselves a drink. And then I would, around 5.30, the house manager or the guy the butler or whatever he would take a snack tray into the living room for the guys to have usually three things um you know whatever cheese crackers dips salami all that stuff um with their drinks and then about seven o'clock we sent into the living room and i moose boost just a bite So it might be one scallop, seared scallop with a garlic aioli, or it might be one sesame wing, you know, with an Asian dipping sauce. It might be, oh gosh, you know, 
a little little gratin thing of uh, scallops and vermouth or something. Just a, a teeny tiny, just a little bite. Now that scallops, that could have been a first course. That sounds mighty big. But anyway, um, it could be bruschetta with stuff. And then they came into the dining room and sat and they had a three-course meal. So they had a salad or soup to start. They had a main plate and they had a dessert. And we actually made, the sous chef made truffles and those were put in the living room after they got up with coffee in the living room. So that's their food day. Wow. It was a lot of food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they would spend most of the day out? Two two-hour hunts. Oh, okay. So they hunted, I guess they're, no, from 9 to 12, and from 2 to 5, two three-hour hunts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you're not shooting birds right in the beginning of the day or the end of the day. You don't have to get up before daylight, the way you do with deer. No, 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 you do not. Uh-uh. Breakfast was at 8. Yeah, I think breakfast was at 8. I know it was. And they didn't go out till nine. Mm-hmm. And then I worked at another plantation, but that had been converted into a science center, a research center. Which is that? Itchaway. It's south of town. It's be- beyond the house that John took you by. And that's the Woodruff. Yes. Mm-hmm. That was Mr. Woodruff's house, his 30,000 conserved acres. And, and I understand they do a ton of conservation science there now. And that's that, that's it's that's what its purpose is is to demonstrate, educate, and communicate. You know, and to be a trusted source in the conservation of this ecosystem, of this these forests. That's a noble purpose. Yeah, that's it's good science. Yeah, and I understand the um, visitation day that they have in the spring is not to be missed. It's you, every two years, but. It's this March 25th, I think. It's March 25th. And this will be the first time since 2019 that they've had it. Mm. They weren't able to in 2020, 21, and 22. They did a virtual one, I think, one year. But this is the first time that people have been back on campus. And it's private property. Mm -hmm. So people don't just drop by. And so every two years, and they time it to the... Blooming of the native azaleas, they'll be in bloom. Mm-hmm. It's pretty. It's pretty spectacular. It's beautiful. And, and since I've left, I've left uh, not quite a year and a half ago. They've built new dining facilities and they've started new student cottages that they've built. So they've torn down the first twenty-five years worth of where where people, grad students and stuff, were housed, and now they're in the next phase of now what they're calling a dining facility and now what they're calling like a four bedroom four bath facility it's it's different you know it, some of them were trailers before mm-hmm. so that's coca-cola money right yep so that's something that's quite the legacy <laughs> well it's one i'm forever grateful just it meant the world to me um I'm so glad that I had the job, that job at the end of my career. Um, and it really tied up everything I'd ever done because it was guest services. So it was the hotel. I'd run a laundry before. I'd been in charge of a laundry in a big hotel before. I mean, I had cooked 
in batches. I had, you know, bought, I don't know. It was everything that I had ever done in one job. So it was great. Are you enjoying being retired? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. What do you do with your time other than curate? <laughs> well, I mean, I, my time was not my own really until October 1st. And I'm just learning to live. I'm learning how to put something in a day that didn't have anything in it. You know, a day that I made. Um, I still see every sunrise. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm just branching out now. I had duties up until October 1st. And so I'm, you know, free to travel a little bit. I enjoy my new little house. Like, you know, night, like my Conquerable or my new little yard that can be touched by me without being, me being crushed. <laughs> if we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived was this little piece of audio, what is your legacy? It's not killing people a legacy. <laughs> it's being kind a legacy. Yes, it is. Well, then... We've, I've got that. I've got that. I mean, I, I wish no one any harm. I'm beware hatred. And when you see it, and when you see spewing, and when you see vitriol, it's like, y'all, stop. And why do you not see vitriol for... It's a, it's like a man-eating virus. It's horrible. And you, can you not do anything about that? Can you not turn away from that? Can you not, I don't know. I don't even know. This wasn't what you asked me. But I'm not full of it. I'm not full of rancor. After so I guess the- that means that you're full of love and grace, I hope. That's the creative I force. I hope. Yeah. That other is useless. Yeah. Well, I do think that anger can... Now, I, I was that trailing woman. Anger has been my friend before. <laughs> and when it was not useful, it was just anger. But when anger would, you know, take you through middle age <laughs> and, you know, really help you see yourself after you probably had erased yourself for so long. Yes, anger can be your friend. And then when it's not, it's just useless. It's useless. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, doesn't build anything. My legacy is I am about a laugh fest. <laughs> and as a, I am about a laugh fest. Laughter is good medicine. I have seen it. I have seen it help the terminally ill. I have seen it help families. I have seen it when you are flat. I have seen just laughter, literally. It's almost like pumping up the air in a cartoon character's chest after they've been flattened by a steamroller or something. It really, it it lifts. And uh, I also think that faking it lifts until you can until it's real but laughing I think is so important and for months 
as I've had to put myself back together, I thought, okay, maybe I can laugh. But it was months before I made anyone else laugh because I was just languishing. I was by myself. And the first time I saw him, I thought, I made her laugh, which there had been a legacy. I had done that before. And I was glad to see it come back. And I really think it's a, oh boy, it's a tonic. So yes, to those two dames that left, um, I worked with them. It's good to have friends. Oh gosh, yes it is. Yeah. Yes it is, I do believe in laughing. God bless you, Bronwyn. Thank, Thank you. you. What I mean, I am so. I'm like. I'm probably blushing because it gets like you just talked about yourself for how long. <laughs> oh. Anyway, I'll. I'll, I'll Thank uh, you. Oh, uh, my pleasure. Bronwyn texted me, and I think she got all up in her head and was worried about what she said, and you know whether it was better suited for private conversation. And I thoroughly appreciated her honesty and her directness, her candor, and it was a wonderful conversation. And the next time in Albany, Georgia, I owe her a meal. Perhaps we'll get the pig's feet. That's it, Bronwyn. We'll go to BJ's and we'll get the pig's feet. I look forward to it. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported manlistening.com, In Her Words, the podcast, and Voice Locket, voicelocket.com. Got another client today, starting to fill up. Springtime's filling up. Uh, Thank you, guys. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much. Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10.